Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. Uh, my name is Michael Weiss. I'm the Director of Special Investigations for Free Russia Foundation. And uh, this week, it's a very news jam-packed week, uh, and I can think of no better person to have on the show than uh, my next guest, John Holquist, who is the Director of Threat Analysis or Intelligence Analysis at FireEye, one of the uh, world's leading cybersecurity and threat intelligence firms. Uh, John, it's great to have you on. And I first want to just say congratulations, because I know the the unsealed grand jury indictment that the DOJ released this week, naming six GRU cyber operatives and Sandworm, a bit of malware that you have been amply familiar with over the last several years. This must be feel like Christmas come early for you, like all of your hard work has now been certified by the highest levels of US intelligence and US justice. So I want you to kind of talk a little bit about who these guys are, what they got up to. I mean, obviously people reading this, many, I think, who haven't studied cybersecurity and, and certainly Russian military intelligence penetrations uh, the way that you have, will be surprised to learn that this has affected the Winter Olympics. This has affected global commerce to the tune of billions of dollars. I mean, this really was the worst breach in the history of cybersecurity. And yet very few people even know it took place. So walk us through a little bit about what the unsealed grand jury indictment tells us and also how you managed to map this stuff out, frankly, even before the U.S. government said, yep, indeed, it did happen. So the grand jury indictment basically connects Sam Worm or Unit 7455 or 4455, no. <laughs> the, the GRU unit behind several incidents, uh, they basically connect them to uh, a handful of these incidents. I think the biggest one or the one that hadn't been really discussed publicly by the U.S. government before was the uh, the Olympics, the attack on the Olympics, which is, I think, was kind of the coup de grace for us as far as seeing how far that actor was willing to go, you know, uh, attacking sort of an international event of goodwill uh, after this hit long history of these increasingly aggressive global incidents that they've been tied to. And, you know, we'd spend a lot of time sort of screaming at the top of our lungs how important this actor is and how they're unrestrained. And this year, we were anticipating another attack. We were anticipating an attack on the Summer Games. And one of the biggest insights from the government here that we didn't know about was that they are planning on attacking the Summer Games. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason we thought they were going to attack the Summer Games is we or nobody had ever actually blamed them for attacking the Winter Games. There was literally no reason for them to, to not continue on that path. And maybe they would be... Uh, luckier this time. Let me stop you there, though. I mean, can you explain what Sandworm is, how it is kind of able to cripple uh, international computer systems? And then talk a little bit about the, I mean, I know this is speculative on your part, on everyone's part, but what's the, the purpose? What's the mission of going after, as you put it, an, a goodwill uh, event such as the Winter Olympics? I mean, that doesn't seem to be hurting the West per se. It's just a projection mm -hmm. of power, a demonstration of what we can do and the sort of infinite reach of these uh, operations. What, you, what it was that you were looking at for so many years. Well, the first understanding of Sandworm is that they look to be, you know, probably Russian uh, Russian intelligence of some kind. When we first came across them, they were carrying out what looked to be an intelligence collection mission in the Ukraine. They were gathering or they were targeting, you know, government organizations. That's pretty typical. It's pretty classic espionage. And they might have been lost in a number of different cases we look at all the time. 
but they were using a zero day. So we basically had reason to kind of give them a, a closer look. What is zero day? So when you when you're patching or you're asked to do to do patching all the time on your phone or your uh, your machine, you're essentially closing these holes that we didn't know existed when we first released the program. You know, over time, people find those those holes. Uh, and use them to basically gain access to your system or do something awful to your system. When they've not been patched, we call them we call them a zero day. So in this case, these guys had found a vulnerability in uh, Microsoft Office that they were using, um, which allowed them to basically launch code on a system after you'd opened a document that they'd sent you. And so we gave it a lot, of, a lot, a much closer look. We'd found it uh, actually at the same time. ESET, a uh, an AV firm, had also found the zero day, and we reported it to Microsoft. And we knew that because it was going to be public, the release was going to be public. That we wanted to talk about it publicly and what we were looking at. And we did a lot of work on attribution. We found some some information that suggested the actor was a Russian speaker. We found some information, a lot of information that suggested they were interested in Russian related topics. So a lot of their social engineering, for instance, what was very Russia oriented indicates to us that even though we couldn't always see the target, that the targets they were after were actually interested in Russia issues. And, you know, when you talk about how spies work, like Russian spies often target people who are interested in Russian issues. That's that that often works. So. We had some insight there, but we had moderate confidence, uh, a Russian actor at the time. And uh, how could you tell uh, the difference between it being, say, the FSB or the SVR, domestic and foreign? At the time, at the time, we couldn't. Uh, Based on the type of targeting, though, it was sort of a classic espionage mission. We kind of assume that they're either working for the security service as a sort of proxy, or they were just directly, they were the the security service. So that that was kind of where we were at attribution at the time. Uh, We actually went public with the report. And one of the really cool things is that when we we went public with it, a lot of people gave the report a good look. And uh, a, a guy named Kyle Wilhoyt, who does a lot of uh, industrial control system type work, noticed that there's these artifacts in this Malco that you guys put out, and it's got like industrial control system, like they're like the industrial control system related artifacts. And industrial control systems are the, the is the software and tools that we use to automate power plants and and manufacturing and all the critical sensitive industries all over the world. And so we took another look at a lot of things with that in mind, looking for more hints of this activity. And what we found was it was riddled with it. There was all kinds of all kinds of suggestions in, in this malware that these guys were going after those types of systems. And shortly thereafter, the federal government, the U.S. federal government came forward and said, yeah, this malware is in a lot of U.S. Uh, critical infrastructure, particularly the grid and, and I think water as well. And you know, at the time, we said we came forward and said, "Look, uh, we don't think they were in this critical infrastructure to figure out what you know how we make electricity. They're not trying to get ahead. Their industry is not trying to get ahead here. This is an intellectual property theft. They're there because they want to mess with it, or they want to be able to mess with it at some point down the road, or they want to hold it under threat." And then they disappeared. And the reason, by the way, that we called them Sandworm is one of the ways that we tied all the pieces of this network together is they'd had a habit of putting references to the Dune science fiction series in their malware. And a brilliant analyst, Drew Robinson, basically started recognizing that. And they used that to go and find more pieces. It built out essentially a web of activity. And that's what sort of started. So we go forward with it. And 
we start getting a piece, a couple pieces here and there. We can't find them very well. And we notice, by the way, that all the Dune references have been taken and stripped out of their malware. So we're like, oh, we're never going to see these guys again. They've they've disappeared, and I was really upset about it. And then they show up in um, uh, targeting utilities in Ukraine. Um, and I, I had a couple of meetings where I said, look, I think these guys are attackers. I think that's what their business is. And I'm worried about them attacking stuff in Ukraine and, and not, didn't really receive much attention. And, you know, it wasn't I didn't know for sure that these things were going to happen. But we, we did tell some folks and that winter. So this was about a year after we'd first discovered them. So just to give a time frame, this is like 2015. 2016, I think. I got. I have to double check. It's been, it's been so long. They turn out the lights in Ukraine. What a distinction. I mean, you, you think of cyber intrusions as one of two things, right? Either you're exfiltrating information, purposes of industrial theft, mm-hmm. or as we saw in 2016 in the U.S. election, hack and leak to try and an electorate, or you're looking to shut things down. You're looking to have your operation physically manifest in the, in the sense of- Yeah, we call that cyber network, our computer network attack, right? right? So there's CNE and CNA and military parlance. Computer network attack is really about disruption, destruction, defacement, all the Ds. So these guys appeared to be attackers essentially, and they turn out the lights. So big questions at the time, like, okay, the Stuxnet of, you know, the Russian Stuxnet, do they have some ultra sophisticated capability that they deployed in Ukraine? And what we found out was, is that they basically traverse from a IT network to the network that runs industrial control systems. And once they got there, they took over an operator's computer system. So this would be like the guy that runs the electricity. And they just started flipping switches on this thing. And so opening breakers and, and whatnot. Uh, when they were done, they erased the box. So if you're the operator, you cannot brief, unflip these switches. And there's actually a video out there of an operator who pulled his phone out and started getting video of things, basically his mouse being under control and somebody doing this. And they did this at a bunch of different stations simultaneously. And when they managed to turn their power out, and the other thing is I think they telephonically disrupted the uh, the lines. So they basically jammed the lines with calls. So these guys would have like a, a reduced ability to, to change things at, at the source, you know, some sort of manual process. It didn't immediately destabilize the country. People weren't dying. The, the, you know, the economy didn't wasn't brought to its knees. They didn't mix it with some sort of, let's say, bombing campaign. Like you see the power might go out in some country and then there's a air raid or something along those lines. Why did they do this? One of the thoughts that we had at the time was like, we think they did this to scare the hell out of people, right? Like to take the war out of the east in that country and bring it right down. I mean, they they hit Kiev, like right there uh, and turn the lights out there and demonstrate power and ultimately to undermine security or feelings of security in that country. It's a lot like terrorism, right? Terrorism is not really about killing people. The amount of people you kill is really, really just a factor in how many people you scare, right? And this is what this was really about. This is about undermining the institution of security, undermining the government, right? Who's supposed to have this mono- the monopoly on violence and, and security. And I think it was pretty successful. And that's kind of our first peek into what why they do what they do. So they end up doing it again about a year later, more sophisticated malware. And, but at some point, we see them sort of fork. And the new things got really interesting, right? So they've got this really cool, hot capability that's for, for shutting down the grid. Uh, and it's really neat. And then we start seeing them developing ransomware. 
is unique among ransomware families because it's ransomware that doesn't work. You can't make any money off this ransomware. Or yeah, I guess you could make a little if they they sent something to someplace and you got it. But it's not built to unran. You're never going to unlock this computer. Ransomware is when you steal someone's login, change the password, or whatever, lock them out of their own system. You lock you. You really it's about locking like encrypting a drive or encrypting a machine and then basically ransom in the the, uh, the cryptographic key. Pay us in Bitcoin um, the following amount, otherwise you'll never see Yeah, it. I don't know, you're never going to get this thing back. But they weren't even collecting the keys, so they didn't care if that thing stayed, uh, thing that was never unlocked, because the point of it wasn't really to, it wasn't really ransomware. It was, uh, ransomware was a really convenient, deniable, like, persona or that they could do. Appear to be criminal while carrying out attacks, different layers, they recognize, they recognize what this was anyway. And so we watched them sort of develop this capability. And so they go from this, you know, turning out the grid, which is the fear we've always had, you know, in this business, I can tell you. And we've been talking about for, for a you know, billion years about when is it going to happen? And then we, then we see ransomware. And in my, in my opinion, the ransomware is more effective. And because and we know that it was the most, it was extremely effective because those attacks morphed into the not the NotPetya incident. So when you say the ransomware attacks were more effective, explain why. Because whereas the, those in, that the power incident took years to, to design, or, or probably months to design, almost a year worth of, uh, of preparation. They had to burn very special tools eventually as they got sophisticated. They had to, you know, they had to be able to get into these places, which is more probably more and more difficult, if not impossible over time. These are not uh, homogenous systems. They all look different. You got to control them all. And then you get them down for a very short period of time. But the ransomware attacks, they're taking out ATMs, they're taking out the logistic systems that run the country. They're trying to target um, the airports, by the way, they're in two of their, their two biggest airports fiddling around trying to bring those down. And this is Ukraine. Uh, in Ukraine. They leverage a tool that is allegedly came from the NSA, or I guess it's, it, it's called Eternal Blue, but that, that was just one piece of it. But the, the big, what made it really effective is it came down through a widely used supply chain. So it was a accounting software that you, if you did business in Ukraine, you had to have this software. And so a lot of multinationals had this software. That brought this this ransomware, an update from that software, just like we were talking about earlier, your pat, bringing your patches also brought this ransomware and uh, it started locking down major corporations, some of which may have never been able to brought, bring themselves out from under this, if, except for some very fortunate events. I think uh, Andy in his book gets, does a great, You're talking great about story. Andy. Andy Greenberg in his book Sandworm does a great story of going out and looking at some of these people and the effects they had on their organizations. But trucks were lined up at ports, you know, companies like Maersk with millions of dollars. And now we're in this really interesting spot with the not pet, yeah, where uh, some of the targeted organizations are actually suing their insurers. Uh, and the reason they're suing their insurers is that this was insurers maintained that this was an act of war. This was Russia targeting Ukraine. But the targeted organizations, you know, were insured for a lot of money. They took a huge hit. I think uh, one pharmaceutical company in particular is now suing their insurer for $1.3 billion in damages uh, that's not been covered. So, John, I mean, Russian military intelligence targeting a Ukrainian 
accountancy system using a particular software. That I understand because that is an extension of the dirty war that is going on in Donbass. That's an extension of just Russian foreign policy to keep Ukraine down and divided and against- Why get everybody on earth? Is that right. what you're about to ask? Yes, no, exactly. Because you know what's funny to me about the sandworm metaphor, if you, if you know your uh, Frank Herbert novel, is it, these creatures start out being wild beasts living under you know the desert sand and then in yeah. the end the fremen kind of control them yeah it's the opposite it's it's a malware that's created for a specific task and purpose but then it becomes widespread and they it just sort of like a wild beast that you cannot contain anymore is that it, correct if, they want if to you look at the history of these operations things like this worms get ironically and this by the way one of the reasons we picked the name sandworm is it had this uh, additional worm slash paras <laughs> parasitic feel to it too. So it was it had all the right things going for it. But worms and a, a lot of these tools, they get out of control. They don't uh, always stay put. Stuxnet re received a lot of attention in Iran. But as I recall, there were some incidents in Belarus and, and elsewhere where people were looking at it early because it, it had gotten us in, in the wrong systems or I think they were just, it had basically gone too far and it attracted too much attention. The Agent BTZ breakout, which is, was we've tied to Russian intelligence, is a tool that was designed to get into, it was basically designed to move its way into classified networks, probably, or, or across air gaps. Well, the problem is that when it's built to literally move uh, autonomously by itself, well, guess what happens when things are allowed to move by themselves? So they just do what they're made to and they replicate. Sometimes they replicate out of control. And we ended up with this massive problem where this worm was everywhere. And did, um, did actually Russian systems get hit? There was like blowback. Oh, absolutely. Right? absolutely, yeah. I think by choosing a company like that, that accounting software company, I thought, that, I think they picked a good way or they found a good way to put some limits on it, right? Yeah. But they weren't perfect limits. They never are. And others got hit. A lot of us, a lot of others, but it was still focused on Ukraine. They took the hardest hit. They couldn't, their people couldn't get into to, uh, ATMs. There were massive problems with logistics and transportation in the country. I've heard stories about subways freezing up and things like that. So it was, it was worst of all, they were worst of all hit. But the this way that the destructive tool was pretty effective again there was a wave of attacks like this where a lot of them were some of them were disrupted bad rabbit comes to mind some were not really effective i think not that you really you know taught us a lesson on how, how effective these guys could be how they were changing their thinking about disruptive attack and just to bring this back down to sort of the raw components or the, the human element, I, I should say. This indictment is against six Russian military intelligence officers. So mm -hmm. literally, we're talking about six guys sitting in a tower in the Moscow suburbs, cooking up a bit of software that halts global commerce, yes. however long that was, causes multi-billions of dollars in insurance claims, shuts down global shipping. I think hospitals or medical clinics in Western Pennsylvania were yeah. affected. Yeah, this is terrifying stuff. Your power plant operator could see all of a sudden his screen hijacked and you know his mouse going around clicking things that he is not himself in control of. And it's six guys. And, and by the way, the indictment also names at least one of these guys was doing rogue operations mm -hmm. basically just to enrich himself. He was like mm -hmm. hacking for the sake of, you know, making money. Uh, forget the hostile state actor component. There's a criminal component to this too. Yeah. 
And it doesn't sound though like it's very, you know, every time I talk to cybersecurity experts, I say, oh, this sounds pretty sophisticated. And I always hear inevitably, no, actually it's quite crude. It's really dumb, but it, it, it works because it, it relies on human stupidity or fallibility. Would you say that Sandworm is on the admittedly relative scale of zero being any idiot, you know, with a dial up internet connection can do it to 10 being, no, this is pretty sophisticated. I think they've I think they've done some some interesting operations, and in so I wouldn't wouldn't write them off. So there's a couple of pieces I think that that they're really good at, and one is that the destructive the additional you know the destructive attacks. You know they they think they've got kind of complex operations. Now, like there are people, my peers, right among my peers, a lot of people. If you go around, and I'll do this after a few drinks, go around in a group of these guys and and ask them who their favorite threat actor is. A lot of people will say Turla, the Agent BTZ guy. BTZ guys I discussed earlier, highly uh, sophisticated, great operational security. Oftentimes when they're found, they disappear and we lose them entirely. They've done some really cool technical stuff like using satellites and, and all kinds of weird stuff to bounce there. Really is who? We don't know. It's generally thought to be uh, FSB, uh, Russian FSB. But Turla's greatest hits don't match up to, I think, Sandworms in, in some regards because these guys are doing this classical espionage mission that's quiet and, and that's the way it's supposed to be operated, done. Whereas the Sandworm guys have been involved in many of the biggest incidents in, in, in history. Like if you look at top 10 attacks... Uh, in history, these guys have been responsible. So they're separated by a couple of things. One, their creativity. And two, the absolute audacity. So here's, I mean, that's, and that's kind of, you know, a good segue into the, to the Olympics, right? The audacity to target an international event of goodwill, even when people were publicly saying, including myself, publicly saying they're coming for this event. And they were targeting them for a while up into the actual event. There was a series of incidents up into the event, starting with a DDoS attack that began or the day after the decision came down to bar Russian athletes. And they've just separated themselves by the incredibly aggressive behavior. Mm. And they have had some some seriously complex operations. I think one of them is is that the second attack on the grid was use a really complex piece of malware that showed that they were that they may not have developed in house. By the way, they may have actually worked with an outside lab or a contractor. It's not really clear. And then there was the the other pieces that we didn't know that they were doing at first. Eventually, we were able to connect them to other people activity that we thought belonged to other people. Yeah, they were working. Yeah. Well, we found out with regards, for instance, the incident at uh, during the Olympics. I'm sorry, during the elections, is they were one half of of our one side of a coin. One side was APT28, which was doing the intrusions, something that Sandworm is absolutely capable of doing. But 28 was carrying out these intrusions, and then Sandworm was doing the other side. They were the ones uh, laundering these intrusions through the media. They were creating these personas, uh, cutouts to take credit for it. They created the election leaks website and somehow lost it. And then they, they created DC leaks. Uh, they created Gucci for 2.0 in a matter of, I think, less than 24 hours in response to CrowdStrike's announcement that, that Fancy Bear was in their system to throw off blame. And guess what? They were absolutely successful. They pulled that off. There is so much doubt over what Sandworm has done. And a lot of that doubt was created by Sandworm's own great work. They have absolutely built deniability in their operations, which has allowed them to continue to carry out their operations. Right. How many people would believe that they actually targeted 
the Olympics. They built this little into their code. They built in these North Korean indicators to throw people off and say maybe it was the North Koreans. They've created enough doubt around their old operations to build a national conversation over who is truly responsible. And they've been absolutely successful to the point where if I I had shouted top of my lungs uh, that the Russians were responsible for that attack in the Olympics, I guarantee you a sizable portion of Americans would have, you know, would have told me I was full of it. Today, they'd, they'd almost be surprised if the Russians hadn't done it, right? The f- most fascinating aspects about the, studying the GRU is the entire history of this organization. I mean, even going back to when it was the fourth department of the Soviet military, and they were actually very good at human intelligence. They ran some of the top, the, the best spies that the Russians ever had. Today, we think of them as this sort of blunt, crude, almost peasant-like instrument. They're just kind of throwing everything they can. It's a fusillade against the West. And in in so doing, the trade craft can be quite sloppy. They get caught. Sometimes they don't even kill the people they're going after, such as Mr. and Skripal and his daughter. But at the end of the day, they do create this sense of menace and encompassing terror. And when they are successful, you know, crudity and sort of lack of sophistication aside, it really does have an impact. I mean, the, the financial impact that Sandworm has had alone in hurting the West is extraordinary. I mean, this What's is the, big- the geopolitical reason to target the Olympics. Well, the only thing I can think of is just pure revenge and... Uh, exactly. And then when I think about, you know, their activity, which may have not been, you know, you, you know, you call sloppy, but it may just have been you know, audacious and aggressive by nature and willing to, and there's a a certain willingness to be caught. Yeah. You know, Russia has accepts that, you know, being caught is part of the part of the game and not necessarily an issue anymore for them. I think the GRU Um, absolutely accepts it. I I know that in studying the the contrastive ethos, let's say, of of the different services, the FSB and the SVR tend to be a little more um, condescending about their neighbors in military intelligence because, you know, for the SVR, getting caught, that's the whole ball game, right? You know, you get PNG'd usually from uh, an mm-hmm. it, It's a big problem. The GRU, they sort of shrug. I mean, you saw Bellingcat exposed. I, I mean, these guys were registering their driver's licenses and their automobiles in Moscow to the same headquarters as where they're conducting these cyber operations. It's that's how we don't give a fuck they are, right? You know, what ends up happening is fine. They can't travel to the West. They're on, you know, no fly list. They can't go shopping at Harrods in London or to New York and Florida for vacation. But so what, you know, even if they retire at a young age, they get state honors, they get their pension, they're probably living a relatively or comparatively good lifestyle in Russia. And then the factory just that produces them keeps churning out new young guys do the same thing, right? This is sort of the weird contradiction we have to to deal with. I mean, it's like on the one hand, yes, this isn't rocket science, but on the other hand, it doesn't have to be. And also we, you know, talk from a cybersecurity point of view, it's, it's one thing like, you know, an American journalist falling for a hoax website that purports to be an independent news organization. I mean, that, that's human fallibility. How does the United States, how do Western countries and Western institutions protect themselves from these forms of intrusion? Most guys I talk to say there is no form of deterrence for cyber warfare because anybody can get hit if the aggressor is just that determined and spends yeah. time and resources to hit him. I think that's that's relatively true. I think if we talk about how we protect ourselves from, from this activity, I think sunlight does is probably the best method, right? I think the American public needs to know that this is going on. So 
I was really impressed. So we just had this Iranian incident. Was very impressed. A lot of questions were being asked. I got a question about the Iran stuff, or the Proud Boy stuff, very early. Well, I answered. The kids were screaming. I answered, and I literally said, uh, "That is, you know, voter intimidation." I actually, within like thirty minutes, realized I was like, "This is not voter intimidation." This is widespread. I've got to like take a closer look at this. But I noticed that one of the things I noticed that media has become a lot more skeptical. And that's huge, right? Yeah. Because media is the one of the means that they need to launder this stuff. Right. There's obviously the the other incident going on with uh, the New York Post story where right. the media is skeptical about the origins of that. That's the behavior that is going to stop a, another sort of hack and leak operation that the type of which Sandworm would be working to push, you know, regardless of whether or not the story is even true. Somebody asking questions about the source and refusing to play ball, uh, you know, without clear answers. That's how we're going to stop it. And I have been very impressed that, and, and I am under the, I am of the opinion that we've made huge strides since, since 2016 in that regard. But we, we have to blame these guys. It took two and a half years to blame these guys for the Olympics. If we hadn't had uh, coronavirus, would we be now blaming them after the, went the Summer Olympics? So the Summer Olympics would have already happened. Right. Would we literally be blaming them after they successfully attacked the Summer Olympics? And that's my fear. Why did they attack the Summer Olympics? Because they didn't bother, we didn't tell anybody they did the first time. That's unacceptable. We have to do it fast. That's the other thing I'm very proud of this time. Is they didn't mince words. They didn't. They got out in front of it, and they said the elections are important enough that we're going to start talking about attribution early and fast. And I mean, that was the fastest turnaround I've ever I've ever seen for any <laughs> for any incident in my career. Uh, and and I do I do believe it's accurate. So that's how we're going to to fight this stuff. Constant exposure, naming and shaming. Of- naming and shaming. But here's the thing, if, if with these incidents, so much of it is about attacking our institutions, right? And creating doubt and everything. If Iran, for, for instance, Iran was now forced to release this video in an environment where they've already been called out as the responsible players. Whatever message they have is now denigrated by the fact that everybody knows what, what the game is. And it's a, that's a tough environment to operate in, even if you have Metallica and what I thought was actually a very well put together, high pro- production value video. That's a very impossible video uh, it's pl- place to operate. Now you've got context, everything you do. Nobody's going to pass that thing on without the, inform- you know, the information you need to understand what's really going on. And we've we cut them off. Even if they attack the Olympics, if we had said, look, we think the Russians are going to attack the Olympics. It happens, whatever. And we're like, well, there's the Russians. And we're going to do something about it. And I think the, the global community would line up behind it. We yeah. can't wait till after the fact. We have to move faster. International cybersecurity community came out a long time ago and said, this was, you know, the, the Olympic stuff was the Russians. We should have, everybody should have got behind that. You know, and by the way, it's not only on the United States to the only country that, that calls out you know, Russian aggression on the Olympics. That's an international event. And there are a lot of other, every other country has the responsibility to be involved there. As far as I'm concerned, they need to catch up. Well, okay, John, on that note, um, I want to leave it there. I think we've, we've gone a little over time, but it was, it was so fascinating hearing from you because like I say, you, you were on this case and Sandworm, I think was your coinage or somebody else. Well, anyway, you, you were like a pioneer in understanding the uh, aggressiveness and also the target map that these guys were uh, using uh, a long time ago. So first of all, congratulations on feeling dedicated. Uh, and we'd love to have you back the next time the Russians, I don't know, take out the New York City power grid or <laughs> 
turn the vote in yeah god, god forbid yeah no i mean <laughs> yes it's coming it's 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 a terrifying dystopian world that you've depicted but <laughs> one we have to live in but now. only if we let it be that's the important thing right well said anyway uh, john hillquist thanks so much for coming on and uh, we'll see you next time all right thanks for having me all right take care <laughs>